0: Hey everyone, welcome to Rewildology, the show all about conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell Norman, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. Elephants. We've chatted quite a bit about these animals on this podcast, everything from anti-aging research to human-elephant conflict. But there is one huge, controversial topic that we haven't touched on before, elephant tourism. If you haven't traveled to Southeast Asia, then maybe you've seen photos on Instagram or videos on YouTube of people traveling abroad and having experiences with elephants. Everything from bathing elephants to riding them, to watching them do tricks in front of thousands of onlookers. And I have to ask, how did watching these interactions make you feel? Now, imagine you are traveling and witness firsthand elephants being treated in ways that you completely disagree with what would you do? That's exactly what occurred with today's guest, Michael Volger. Michael grew up in the mountains of Colorado and while on a trip to Laos after college, saw elephant treatment that he couldn't bear. He had previously been on several trips abroad working on various conservation programs and he wanted to start his own impactful project. So he and his close friend partnered with local Laotians to found Mandalao, a no-riding, sustainable elephant tourism experience. They immediately grew in popularity, but his road has been anything but easy. If you like the show and want to support it, share the episode on your Instagram stories and tag Rewildology. You can also check out the Rewildology swag store on the website and purchase your favorite piece of merch. 10% of proceeds go right back to conservation, and the link is in the show notes. Also, I'm going to start something new. At the end of the episode, I have a question about today's conversation that I'd like to post to you and hear your thoughts on. Feel free to DM me your answer on Instagram or leave a reply in the Rewidologist Community Facebook group. I am looking forward to hearing from you. All right, everyone, on to my conversation with Michael. Thanks so much, Michael, for coming on and oh stopping in your time here back in the US to chat with me and, and chat with everyone here on Rewildology. So, but before we get to Louse and Elephants and all of your amazing work, where did this all start? Like, where did you grow up? What was your journey that brought you from childhood to what you're doing now?
1: That's a very good question. I'm not sure I can really like point to like many specific events that kind of instilled this love of nature and wildlife, but I grew up in Indian Hills, Colorado. So just up the road from here and, you know, grew up with horses and miniature donkeys and goats and dogs and, you know, pet birds and always Mm -hmm. had was surrounded with animals. So I think that was part of what instilled, you know, just the love of animals in my life. And i you seen know, just the deer and the elk and occasional mountain lion and bear that would come through. We were kind of living up, you know, in that part of the mountains where you see wildlife pretty frequently. Yeah. My dad used to take me out camping as much as possible when we were younger. So it's kind of a ton of my early years out camping with him and hiking and just love nothing more than being out in the woods, being out in nature. So yeah, kind of followed that through later in high school. I mean, get a few buddies together and we drive up to western canada to british columbia and go you know backpack one of the trails on vancouver island for a week and mm-hmm. that was kind of our escape was just to be in the middle fun. of nowhere and surround <laughs> ourselves with bears and you know <laughs> be in cool spots and, um, i'm not sure if i'm allowed to say this but smoke a bunch of weed oh well, you can <laughs> totally
0: say it you can say whatever you want this
1: podcast. Uh, back, back in the day in high school british columbia was like the Place uh, to go the pop the pot so we'd get up there and cross the border and just be stoned and hike around these gorgeous forests. It and sounds
0: like every 17 year old's dream.
1: It was pretty perfect. <laughs> um, yeah, so always kind of a passion. Then, uh, went to school up in Steamboat Springs, mm. uh, Colorado Mountain College for an associate's degree in outdoor education, which is. Basically the coolest degree ever. It's just like rock climbing and mountaineering and canyoneering. I didn't
0: even know that was a thing. It's epic.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's for people who want to get into kind of like teaching that kind of stuff. So under some of the organizations, um, the big ones that take young kids out, students, uh, like outward bound, those type programs. So I did a year of that my grades weren't particularly good in high school. It was pretty hard not to get trade A's, you know, taking classes like that in Steamboat. So I was able to get a scholarship to go up to Portland state for my bachelor's in environmental sciences and It was kind of just through connections up there. I got an internship, I guess it would have been my junior year, like the summer off to go work with the orangutan foundation in Southern Borneo. And that was kind of my first real exposure to like on the ground, like conservation project. And they had a pretty broad scope, whether it was Working directly with the orangutans themselves, one that had, ones that had been displaced through palm oil plantations, or ones that were ex-captive in the illegal wildlife trades, or you know, displaced by forest fires, whatever it might be. So they had that section, but also kind of sustainable community-based farming plots. So they teach villagers like living around the edges of these parks, how to compost, how to basically get away from slash and burn agriculture. Um, so they stopped chopping down trees, they'd stop selling their land to palm oil corporations and actually be able to live like a sustainable life off the land without degrading it. So that was cool to see kind of full circle because there's a lot of steps in conservation. It's not just telling people, Hey, you can't go into this forest and chop down a tree or you can't, you know, go and poach an animal because they don't have livelihoods. That's what they depend on. So. A lot of the work they did was focused on community-based development, which was pretty intriguing. So went back to school, finished my degree, and got kind of a joint opportunity. And tell me if I'm rambling on. No. You.
0: Oh, my gosh. Please, don't stop. <laughs> Keep
2: going.
1: Um, yeah. Kind of a joint opportunity between a Denver-based nonprofit called the Global Livingston Institute. Um, and they've been bringing uh, students and community leaders down to... Uganda and Rwanda for well over 10 years now. Um, one of my close friends started it. Uh, so it was kind of an opportunity with them and the mountain gorilla organization, so we kind of partnered together and spent a good amount of time there, about a year in between the DRC, Rwanda and Uganda. Uh, and really that was just based on community-based development work. So that was working with, it's the, the Batwa people. It's actually the only indigenous group of people in kind of central Africa.
0: Oh, wow. Really?
1: Yeah. And one of the most displaced groups, I mean, a lot of people talk about the, the genocide in Rwanda and the DRC between the Hutus and the Tutsis and they were fighting, but the Batois were, they were fighting all, both the Hutus and the Tutsis were fighting Mm -hmm. the the Batois. So they're the most like displaced, like disenfranchised group of people living in the country. And they were the ones that were still, In Volcanoes National Park or Virunga National Park where the gorillas are, they were the last ones that were hunter-gatherers that when they really started implementing strict rules that no one was allowed in the park, they kicked all of them out, which, you know, in order to protect the gorillas, they had to do it and there just was not enough space left for, for humans and elephants to kind of coexist within that area but they didn't give them the tools to succeed in life after kicking them out. So mm. they had no education, really no even basic skills for farming. No real sense of, you know, clean water systems. I mean, they, they were used to living off the jungle. So the bots are basically living around the fringes of all of the national parks in Uganda as well, um, around the uh, basically all the areas that they still have mountain gorillas. And a lot of our work was farming based, it was building small schoolhouses, it was delivering basic medical care and treatment and trying to raise it to a standard where they could actually survive. I mean, I would love to say it was more than that, I would love to say thrive, but you know, with our limited resources and what we had available, it was more just giving them the opportunity to at least exist somewhat comfortably,
2: mm.
1: um, maybe not by most Western standards, it wouldn't be a comfortable life, but uh, certainly a step up from, from where they were. So trying to <laughs> assimilate them into normal Rwandan culture. So I didn't get to work hands-on with gorillas, that's a pretty specific field, I got to see them a few times, that's uh, awesome. hiking up <laughs> the park. Um,
0: took some treks?
1: I took some treks, yes. yeah, and that was, uh, that was a very eye-opening experience. To say the least, it, uh, some pretty it. traumatic things that I had to had to see and had to.
0: Do you want to share any of those?
1: Um, it, probably not in too much depth. Okay, not yeah. Stuff I like to really um, rehash too much, but uh, just the uh, extreme poverty uh, to a level that I don't think exists in many places, and just uh, I don't know if I'd call them like human right crimes not necessarily a crime, but just, uh, it's some pretty heartbreaking stuff. Mm-hmm. What, what these people were living through. Um, so I like to think that we made somewhat, uh, a, of a difference there. helped some people's lives and, you know, at the same time it is in order to protect the forest and the gorillas and, you know, give them the opportunity to not go into the park and chop down trees and, you know, go poach animals or gorillas, whatever it is. So. Yeah, it was kind of like an all inclusive conservation project. Um, after that, I came back to the States for a little bit, was working some random jobs up in Alaska, um, tour guide and mountain bike, tour guide, and just kind of random stuff. And I had fallen in love with Southeast Asia after, uh, working with the orangutan foundation and traveled around for a few months and yeah, I went to Laos and I fell in love with the place. I mean. Southeast Asia has been like a tourist hotspot destination for about a decade and decades. So, you know, Thailand, Vietnam, Cambodia, to some extent, they're all very well-traveled. It's not a, you know, and it's changed the culture in those countries, I think, pretty significantly. There's a lot more Western influence, a lot more of the travel experiences catered towards Western comforts. It's not a, you know, you go to Thailand and I feel like oftentimes you meet one of the locals and they're smiling at you because they know it's good for your econ- their economy. Mm-hmm. They know it's money's coming in. Whereas I think Laos has remained off that beaten path for travelers and the smiles are still, it's still genuine. Mm-hmm. They're still like, Oh my God, you want to come and see our country? they are oh, like so excited to, to, to meet like a foreigner who's, you know, they want to talk, they want to like, so it's, it's still remained like, still kind of has its core essence, you know, it's traditional like styles. Um, and yeah, I saw some, went to an elephant sanctuary there and it was just awful, you know, all the elephants on short chains are the ones that weren't, you know, whole families on their back. And they just do these repetitive, you know, little loops with the elephants and the hot sun and the whole families on their backs. And it was not, they weren't rescuing the elephants. It was they were turning a profit, like bringing through tourism and it was all very disingenuous and heartbreaking mm. to say the least. So I didn't have experience with elephants before, but I really wanted to get out of the U.S. I wanted to kind of start my own project. And that was kind of eye-opening. It's like, you know, there's certainly this can be done in a much, a much better way, a way that's actually good for the elephants. And that's kind of what spurred, uh, me and one of my really good buddies to start investigating. We spent I don't know six months traveling the country and looking for land and making contacts and figuring out the legalities of opening a project there. You know, it's a pretty strict communist government. Still, yeah, how so.
0: did that's actually one of my big questions. Like, if you wouldn't mind diving into that a little more, how did how did you do that? How long did it take?
1: So we ended up meeting this gentleman, a German guy who'd been living in Laos for 15, 20 years, he'd opened up a couple of guest houses, a restaurant, you know, spoke the language fluently, had good contacts and we kind of hit it off with him and he was excited to meet two younger guys who were interested in creating like a new project. So he was like, yeah, let's let's do this together. Let's let's build. So he kind of like got us the, the fast line into. Procuring business licenses and foreign work permits and, you know, helping us find land and dealing with all of the All of those issues that we really didn't have any experience with Mm -hmm. So he definitely helped us move things along quite quickly. I won't go into it too much depth but it came apparent like kind of right when we were opening up that His primary focus was making as much money as possible and didn't care so much about the elephants themselves Mm -hmm. Uh, so our relationship ended fairly quickly after it started. Uh, so he's no longer part of the organization. You have to like
0: buy his, his portion of the business. Is that how you were able to like cut ties?
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we bought him out of the company. One of my other really good friends who grew up here in Colorado as well, uh, was able to purchase his shares oh, wow. and he's, uh, he's over there now kind of overseeing things, but he's been with us for, yeah, four years now, four or five years. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of like, uh, I guess I consider them my family, like a couple of my best friends. So it's like a, like a little family business now. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's, you know, the government is open. They want to increase like economic revenue coming through the country. So they are open to foreign investment and having people come in and things that will draw on more tourists. So that part isn't exactly the most difficult, but it's, our concept of what we want to do with elephants and it's significantly different than what's traditionally done with elephants in Laos. So that's really where the fighting
2: has begun or the Mm -hmm. challenges
1: have, you know, um, we can get into this in a little bit more, but the, the training aspect with our baby bull, you know, we had letters from the prime minister's office that we had to send him down for traditional training and breaking process. It was a, legal requirements, even though we owned him, it was our elephant. Of course we refused, but that's, you know, stuff like that. And they didn't really understand the concept of doing something for the elephants. I think they thought we were just, just some random Westerners coming in who wanted to do something different. They didn't understand the concept of treating elephants ethically. And now that we've started doing it in some ways it sheds bad light onto all of the other elephant stuff that's going on. Mm. So it's raised tensions that they're almost like coming at us saying that like, because we're doing this, it's saying that they're doing it the wrong way. So we've been faced with some backlash in that manner. Mm.
0: Oh yeah. We'll definitely get into that because I can, I can see how that, I mean, anybody who's breaking norms and big changers, they're always going to face, you know some some resistance and i'm sure you've seen tons but mm-hmm. but before we get into that mm-hmm. let, let's take it back a step so how did you acquire the land that you're on like so, so let's talk about more about Mandalay itself so yeah what is the facility that you've put together how did you get your elephants mm-hmm. and then what are the interactions or the tourist encounters that you have put together
1: for sure so our land is kind of divided into three separate parcels. So we, technically, as a, a foreigner within Laos, only Lao nationals can purchase land. Um, so we found a place where we wanted to build kind of our restaurant and like greeting area for for guests. So all of our tours involve you know coffee and an introduction in the morning and lunch back at the restaurant. So that's kind of like our main hub. So we do own that land. It's in one of my good Lao friends' names, mm. and we have a. 50 year rental contract with him uh the rest of it we got probably about 50 maybe 75 hectares of land that we rented directly from the village so we sign off i think it's every three years we renew the contract and it's just uh yeah village land so primarily forested and nice uh grazing eating grounds for the elephants and where we do a lot of our our trucks with the elephants walk through the paths up there and then probably and this is one of our biggest headaches, but we had to rent the rest of the land from local villagers. So we probably have, I don't know, 30 different contracts oh, <laughs> with trails and, you know, little parcels of land that we've pieced together into this big area. So yeah, one privately owned, the rest village rented, and then the other rented from all these different villagers. So that was quite challenging. But we, so when people come to Luang Prabang, for the most part travelers, they want to see Luang Prabang. It's the ancient capital. It's a UNESCO world heritage site. It's this little peninsula in between the Namcon river and the Mekong river. And it's this French colonial architecture mixed with, uh, I'm going to forget the exact number 13 or something, uh, ancient Buddhist temples.
0: Oh my gosh, this sounds amazing.
1: Yeah. Super mountainous. Like it's, it's gorgeous and it's just got a, it's really own unique vibe and, and style to it. So it's, uh, the main tourist destination in Laos and most people that come to Laos, they really just fly up from Thailand. They'll fly directly to Luang Prabang. They'll spend three days there and that's their experience in Laos. It's a pretty hard country to, to travel in general, if you don't have a lot of time and if you're, you know, not willing to spend, you know, 10 hours, 12 hours on a bumpy hot bus ride to get somewhere. It's not for a lot of travelers. Um, so we wanted to do something close to the long where we know most of the tourism like comes through that area. So we're about 30 minutes outside from this, this gorgeous area. I mean, surrounded by mountains right on the rivers, uh, perfect for the elephants. And yeah, still, you know, when most people have three days there, if we do like a half day, a full day, we can, you know, take them away from one day from the city to, to come and experience our project. So. That was one of our keys in looking for area. Yeah. And I used to go uh, starting about our program. So we kind of picked the area first and you know, elephants are like any creature. They need exercise. So we figured out we've got a handful of different trails and trail systems that we go through, but for the most part, we want the elephants to walk at least like five kilometers a day, even when we have no guests, the elephants still go out and take this walk. They can't just, uh sit there and eat food. <laughs> uh,
2: Hang out. <on. laughs> yeah.
1: So there's this gorgeous little stream called Hoi Noc, uh, right by our place. That's um, kind of one of our main trail systems. We walk up the creek and it's nice and cool and shaded. The elephants always have water. So there's tons of food around there. So they're grazing like the whole time. So we kind of started with that and then figured in the second piece, which would be tourists and honestly gave a lot less consideration to them wanted it to be for the elephants first like a place where they were comfortable um you know plenty of food nice habitat just let them tear down trees and be elephants eat bamboo and basically would just let the guests walk behind the elephants yeah we have some special boots that we provide cuz it gets pretty muddy there's plenty of leeches <laughs> and bugs and mosquitoes and stuff out there but it's uh yeah it's a jungle track so it's not a you know, it's not too steep or anything, but uh it's you have to be the right person for it. Um, you have to be ready to go out into the jungle and get muddy and get some mosquitoes on you and you know, be in the elephant's habitat. So yeah, we do we do half day tours, which is, you know, pick you up in town, our guides will, and yeah, about a 30-minute uh van ride out to the property. Uh, our guides will kind of throw up just absolutely amazing. All, all from Laos and, you know, I've been working with elephants for countless years know tons about it know tons about the area, I'll give you kind of an introduction on the drive out and our, our elephant master who helped us found it, Prusert, he started the Thai Elephant Conservation Center in oh, wow. 1989, which was the year they, the Thailand outlawed the use of elephants for logging. So there was a huge influx of captive elephants with no work, nothing to do. So the government actually propositioned her to build a facility to build a new industry for elephants that were now out of work. And that was kind of the basis for elephant tourism as we see it today within Southeast Asia. So he created that in 1989. He's been working with elephants for, I think even before that, maybe. 10 or 15 years. And he, uh, knows more about them than just about anyone on planet, planet earth. So he, uh, (laughs) he actually just retired after I met him and told him our plans to open this and call it like a green elephant camp, uh, in Laos. And he got so excited and came to join us. So he, uh, he loves nothing more than talking about elephants and just being involved. So get out to the property and coffee and tea, whatever. And he'll give like a 30, 45 minute talk on their conservation status, on the work that we're doing on, you know, elephant behaviors and pretty much like all of the aspects of what our project is trying to contribute to, to give guests a sense of scope of our work and then uh, cross the river. So our restaurants on one side of the Mekong and then the elephants are all on the opposite side. So cross the river with baskets of bananas and do a meet and greet. We keep the groups really small. Um, maximum is six people, always with two elephants. They don't like to be alone. Um, we don't want to overwhelm the elephants. We want it to be a personal experience for the guests as well. So yeah, that first interaction is, you know, and the elephants know it, they're used to the routine. So when they're coming down, they know there's two baskets of bananas just waiting for <laughs> us. So They come trotting down the trail full (laughs) speed. They're, they're ready for their morning treats. Um, yeah. And then after that, it's just, uh, following them through the jungle. I think our half day, yeah, it's about three kilometers round trip and come back and have lunch at the restaurant, say goodbye to the elephants, with another basket of bananas, maybe do some swimming, uh, in the river. Well, if the elephants want to, we don't let the guests go in with the elephants or participate in the bathing process. We just let the elephants really, you know, it's their decision if they want to go in and splash around. Yeah. And then the full day heads out another, I don't know, four kilometers and we do like a local lifestyle launch out in the jungle. So it's just a more extended period with the elephants. Yeah. It's, it's really simple. It's basically just meet the elephants and, and let them walk. And it's, well, it's been pretty amazing to see uh, the elephants have shown their appreciation after, you know, spending, I I guess this would segue into the next one is, uh, the original five elephants we got all came directly from the logging industry, uh, which is slowly dying in Laos. Technically it's illegal as of like two years ago, but it, people still do it. Illegal. (laughs) Um, so yeah, we went down to one of the logging camps, spoke with the owners and were able to get, uh, four adult females and one six month old baby boy, um, him and his mother came together. So they were pretty skeptical at the start, but, uh, yeah, convinced them it was a good place. Um, so we brought the elephants up and, you know, they were very, very different animals. They're, you know, used to being controlled with force hooks and hammers. They're used to to hard work. They're used to, you know, really no medical attention. They're used to you know, lack of food, lack of water. So when they came to us, it was like this kind of paradise, but they were all terrified. You know, I couldn't even really approach one of the elephants. Mm -hmm. They'd, you know, get scared. If you, you know, move a hand quickly, you could see their eyes just close. You could tell they'd been abused and it took some time, but not too long, but within, you know, a couple of months, they were just completely different creatures. Just so relaxed I mean an elephant you can tell by kind of like their their body movements just flapping ears their tails swinging back and forth you can tell when they're relaxed and like comfortable and they'd start approaching you and it was just a completely different atmosphere so they you could tell they appreciated the the change in their lifestyle and coming to us and now they're just spoiled
2: rotten
0: (laughs) (laughs) multiple baskets of bananas uh,
1: uh so yeah i mean that's kind of uh how we started and then um as we started getting more so we're primarily funded through the tourists that we bring out to the property we never do like loops with the elephants Uh, it's just one group of elephants we'll go out with one group of people for the day and then they're done we're not like doing circles we have a very limited number of people that we bring out every day but once we started getting some recognition and people really wanted to come to see us. We, you know, before the pandemic, I think we were pretty much booked out like six months to a year in advance. Wow. So it was working. So we actually, you know, we're certainly never going to make much money off of it, but we had enough where we kept going out and rescuing more elephants and we were up to 13 rescues and just, you know, had people coming through and yeah, unfortunately with, COVID-19, we'll get into that in a little bit, but, uh, you know, without that revenue being generated, you know, it's incredibly hard to care for elephants, certainly in the way that we set out to care for them. So eight of the elephants that we had actually ended up going back to their, their home province to live with, uh, back in their, their villages that they came from. We can still go down and do vet checks and check on them at any time. And as soon as we get some revenue coming back through, you plan to bring them all back, but that's been pretty, pretty heartbreaking mm-hmm. to not have them with us. But yeah, I don't know yeah. that answered any, any No, questions. it did. And
0: I think one, maybe one thing to clarify too, so how, how many of these elephants do you own versus how you said they go, they go back to their home province. So. Does Mandelao essentially rent them and house them? Or what is that relationship with a lot of the elephants that you rescue?
1: So the majority we do rent. We own two of them. One was donated to us and then we purchased the, the baby boy. He's really the, the focal point of our elephant reintroduction program back to the wilds. Um, we can talk about that more as well, but yeah. So, you know, in a perfect world, we would have been able to just purchase all of the elephants outright. That would take a lot of capital that we just don't have. So yeah, it's pretty commonplace to rent elephants from their families, the people that own them. And sometimes it's, you know, three or four families that own one elephant and there can be some positives and negatives to it. I mean, obviously the negatives being they're not our elephants. We can't make sure that they're gonna stay with us forever. If the owners change their mind; it's their elephant. They can take it back. So we sign five-year rental agreements that they are to to stay with us for that five years at the minimum, unless we extend it or sign another contract. It does have some positives, you know, it's especially in a culture that's, it's a very poor country. So, you know, when you own an elephant, if we were to just buy it, say it's $30,000 for a female, most likely they probably are not going to make the best decisions with that money. And even if they live in you know, a little village have, you know, really no other sources of income, you could very well see them just going out and buying a brand new truck mm-hmm. with that $30,000 or buying another elephant and propagating the cycle of the captive elephant trade, which we also don't want to do. And, you know, they might not even have gas to put in the truck. So we pay on average, it's around $800 per month rent for the elephants. And it actually works out pretty well for the families because, you know, that's enough to send their kids to school. It's enough to work on their farms. It's enough to, you know, do basic upkeep on their house, you know, put food on the table. So it's kind of a sustainable set money for them going into the future where, yeah, I worry that they would yeah buy another elephant or buy a truck. um, If we just gave like the full amount at once. So, yeah, uh, you know, certainly. The ones that we're going to reintroduce back to the wild, we're going to have to purchase because I don't think uh, any of the owners would be too happy if we
0: <laughs> just sorry, just, just let them go. go through a whole rewilding project. Just so you know, <laughs> in about a couple years, your elephant is going to be wild. <laughs> <laughs> FYI.
1: So that's a challenge we'll, we'll come to here in the future. Uh, but yeah, one was donated to us by Planting Peace, a nonprofit based out of the States here. And she is absolutely darling. Maycom, one of my favorites. I know I'm not supposed to have favorites, but (laughs) they they all have their individual personalities. Some of them are kind of buttheads. (laughs) Other ones are really sweet. Some are just kind of antisocial and quiet. Some are, you know, just always in your face, just, you know, wanting attention or wanting treats and just, you know, a little bit overbearing. But yeah, so we um, own two at this point and yeah we'll see how that progresses in the future.
2: Mm.
0: I think it would be really cool if you could talk about it a little bit more. You chatted about this the other night, and I would really love to bring it up. So uh, anyone that's listening to this podcast or most people who are you know Americans or Western society, we view elephants very differently just because we just love them. They're beautiful creatures. They deserve these good lives. They're so intelligent how does the local community view elephants? So with a difference in how they're being treated with you, you know, versus what, whatever the norm is, could you like really go into that and just the differences about how we might see these elephants versus just local culture?
1: Absolutely. So Lao is known, like the historical name is Lao Lan Song. Uh, long means million and song means elephant. So it's the land of a million elephants. So it's deeply rooted in their culture. And you'll even hear kids they'll call La Long Song today. It's the land of a million elephants, but so culturally they play a big part. You know, you see all of the temples, buildings, names of restaurants, like everything has elephants in it when it comes to actually their interactions with elephants, that's when it starts to change. Like with actual living elephants. And in that sense i think really the traditional kind of view there is they're livestock you know it's not much different than a water buffalo or a cow or or whatnot you know the elephants are used for timber or you know logging and timber export like they're they're animals for for use and i think that goes back for for centuries if not longer so it's you know a difference between we a western society or other places might see this incredibly intelligent, unique, amazing creature that deserves all of this extra respect because of what they are. Whereas I think to the Lao people, it is still very much just an animal that is to be used for, you know, practical purposes that can help out, you know, help, help out humans. I don't think with some of our staff our guides, the ones that are, you know, more well-educated. They can understand the difference between what we're doing and another, you know, say riding camp that's nearby us. That's primarily based to, you know, Chinese tour groups that just want a 15 minute ride that, you know, is not focused on the elephant's well-being or whatnot. So some people do get that, but for the most part, I, I don't think most people understand the most Lao people don't understand the difference between what we're trying to do and what the camp right next to us is trying to do. Mm. They see, we have customers. They're like, Oh, well, if, you know, these, you know, travelers want to come in and walk through the jungle and just stare at an elephant. And that's fine. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't think they think about it on like a much deeper level than that. Then just with animal welfare, you know, really in general, within Laos it's very different than most more developed countries like ideas of it i mean you know dogs running around stray they you know they'll feed them like they're kind of pet dogs but they're not allowed in the house you know they're not going to go up and like pet a dog and give it love or anything The chickens and you know little pigs like all the just running through the villages it's just uh waiting to get eaten basically so they don't have that affection for animals like we do so i think that's very much cultural as well um, and I think it but also like ties into just the training process with the elephants and what we've had to battle with our baby elephant because he's been raised on positive reinforcement but you know they're seeing it as you now we're the livestock department and this animal is the same as a water buffalo mm-hmm. and it's meant to be used to benefit humans and it needs to be trained in this manner but yeah so It's, there's a respect for elephants there. People certainly have, I guess another piece to the puzzle is when you're talking about wild elephants and certainly, you know, there's not many of them left there, but Nampui national biodiversity conservation area, where we plan to work and reintroduce some elephants, there's still a lot of human elephant conflict. So the villagers living on the outskirts of this park. It's still very common that the elephants come out of the park, raid their crops. You know, it's a couple times a year, either, you know, an elephant's killed or a few villagers are killed. You know, they're trying to protect their livelihood, protecting their farms. You can't fault them for that. In many other countries, you look at Thailand, it's an issue there as well. The government actually has money to reimburse the farmers for the crops that are destroyed. There's no sort of program like that in Laos to... Yeah, help people out after an elephant's destroyed so to a lot of you know the villagers living in those areas these elephants are nuisances you know they want them gone they'd be just as happy if you know all the wild population just disappeared so yeah there's a big difference between captive and wild and yeah i mean i would say in captivity they're still pretty rare in captivity i mean yeah they stay 500 to a thousand Elephants left in Laos, and that's both wild and captive. I think there's probably about 300 captive, probably less than 200 wild. Mm. Um, from all the people I've talked to, like the best estimates, but a lot of people, especially if you grow up, you know, in the Wampabong or the NTN, like one of the big cities, a lot of these people have never seen an elephant before, like an actual live elephant. So we bring out like student groups and classes and monks from the monasteries and uh, they're all, you know, super excited to see elephants. Terrified.
0: (laughs) Understandably. They're they're They're
2: creatures.
1: Yeah. So I, I think while elephants are deeply rooted within the culture, they're still kind of uh, an enigma to to most Lao people. They're still like a foreign concept like Mm -hmm. most people don't have like real hands-on experience with them so it's a bit of a disconnect between what it means to allow people and what is actually happening to them Mm -hmm. and how they're being treated
0: yeah i think this would then be the perfect segue so you mentioned it briefly a moment ago so it sounds like the way you are now treating elephants and starting this new ethically way of you know, taking care of them is starting to maybe ruffle some feathers. I would love if you dove into that a little bit more, what is starting to happen now? Maybe some conflict between you and maybe just culturally speaking or with how you're saying like, Hey, this is actually how you're supposed to treat elephants.
1: Yeah. We've seen some positives and negatives, you know, the camp closest to us, I'm not sure how many elephants they have now, but uh th- there is a growing market for tourists who want to experience elephants in an ethical way. I think it's becoming more like kind of common knowledge that you know riding them or being in a place that doesn't really care for the elephants is it's almost becoming taboo for a lot of Western travelers, which is a really good thing. so I think you know at the start, we got popular pretty quick. Mm. And I think a lot of the other camps around us resented us cause it was taking away from, you know, their revenue from the guests coming to them. So they all hated us, you know, so there was no chance of like working like collaborating with any other elephant projects or anything. We were kind of isolated and, you know, shunned that we were these bad guys. Uh, since then, yeah, the elephant camp closest to us has gone full non-riding.
0: Wow. Really?
1: Yeah. An effort to try and get back some of the consumerism, which is great. It's actually becoming a bit of an issue. We see it a lot in Thailand that people are using, not riding elephants. It's, it's almost like greenwashing. Mm-hmm. They say, "Oh, we don't ride elephants, so we're we're ethical." And it's it's a lot more than just not riding your elephants. But to a lot of travelers, it's hard to kind of see through those lines. Um, we're working on a documentary right now that we'll hopefully have released in the next six months or so. That is really kind of an educational experience. So people know the right questions to ask, know what to look for when deciding to go visit a certain elephant project.
0: That is going to be so valuable. Yeah. Oh my gosh, definitely keep me in the loop on not because I want to shout that to the freaking <laughs> world.
1: Yeah. It's, it's really tough if you're not familiar with elephants or if you want to call it an industry, I guess it is. It's hard to see through those lines, you know, asking whether or not to, is your do you have a vet are they a trained medical professional or is it just they someone have. who what's their with what their diet consists of how long you know do you chain them are they isolated from one another can they socialize how much exercise do they get all sorts of stuff so it's not just the non-riding piece but it is a it is a good piece it's a great step so it's nice to see people kind of following our lead on that so it is a step forward for that camp to do that as far as the backlash goes Yeah, I mean, I think it really, I keep going back to, well, I'll take it back a step. So every year they hold the Lao, um, what do they call it? It's just like the elephant festival down in Siberia, which is where most of the logging elephants are. It's a province in Laos and, you know, traditionally it's meant to explain to the Lao people, the importance of elephants within culture, talk about, you know, their endangered status. but. In more recent years it's really just become like an auction house for you know, Chinese people coming in who want to buy these elephants
2: illegally and
1: bring them across the border. But yeah, so technically the elephants, even if you own them, they're still property of the Lao government. They're still they still own Lao still owns them. So this elephant festival is a horrible, horrible place. <laughs> Um, I hope this doesn't get spread to anyone like in law or the Lao government. Cause I'd get in a lot of trouble for saying that, but you know, they pack in all of these elephants, you know, hundred, 150 to the small fairgrounds area, no trees, burning hot sun, piles of trash, all the elephants on short chains, they do short rides, they do a, a show with fireworks and stuff. And it's awful. So mm-hmm. they have always wanted us to send our elephants. Down to this festival to participate, which we've never wanted to do. Yeah, the exact opposite of you know what we think elephants should be doing. So you know that's created a lot of backlash from the government itself. Like, why won't you put this as a Lao national pride thing? This is what we're the Lao country wants to do to help showcase elephants, and we're like, no, it's just it's not not our thing. So we've had to pay a lot of money not to send our elephants and not like under the table bribes or anything. But, you know, the government will come up with a different answer and they're going to be like, oh, well, if you won't send us, you know, six elephants, then we have to find them somewhere else and you have to pay for all of their transport and for them to live there for a week. So, you know, five or $10,000, we'll have to hand them the money. Who knows if they really even do find other elephants to replace ours or if they just Pocket the money, yeah. but yeah. So, and that's really a big thing with the training of our baby, because they there aren't too many baby elephants left in Moss. So there hasn't been too much captive breeding, so they want him to go down. And the baby elephants you do see there, they're spinning hula hoops on their trunks. They're you know standing up. They're doing like what is that like a curtsy when you mm. like bow down. They're doing these tricks, right? And they're all dressed up, and so they have been adamant they want him to get the traditional training so he can do all of those Mm -hmm. tricks and go down there for it and you know we got letters from the prime minister's office from all of these people you know big red government stamps signatures and he was even stolen from us at one point got him back like two days later it was the worst him and his mother were taken from us in the middle of the night and he was on his way to go get traditionally trained and also found out later that his current owner at that time had a deal set in place with someone who was going to be bringing him across the border to China and he was going to be worth upwards of like $300,000. We got him back, uh, fortunately enough. And just through a bunch of red tape, you know, brought in our own trainers. Like I've been training him for five years and we were able to, to move past that, but that's most of the backlash has come from the government and just like our not being willing to cooperate with their sense of what we should be doing with Mm -hmm. our elephants so it's not so much them fighting us and saying oh no you can't just have your project and you know walk with the elephants and let the elephants be elephants like they're fine with that it's more just us not conforming towards what they want to see us do with the elephants outside of our project and so it's created some challenges.
2: I
0: bet, and one of the other challenges that you mentioned and you've, you've brought it up a couple small times, but I really would love for you to go into it further. China, (laughs) I always feel like China is just always in these conversations for some reason. Well, there's reasons, but talk about that a little bit more. Why does China want these elephants and what is that doing for you on the possibility of purchasing any of these elephants and you keeping them? So like how is all of this full circle and what this issue is now?
1: Yeah, certainly. So once an elephant crosses into China, uh, they're primarily used for, I mean, they're entertainment purposes. So they're either going to circuses, they're going to amusement parks, they're going to kind of roadside, just tourist attractions for rides. Uh, some drive through safari parks but uh in general the idea is you want that elephant to be another reason they wanted to train our baby is so he can do tricks Mm. and you know babies are worth more because you know if you look at an asset an elephant might live 60 years kept in relatively like good condition within captivity you get more profit if it's if it's young i mean you know if they get him when he's three years old they basically pencil in 50 years of making money off the animal so yeah, crossing the border there is super valuable mm. um, and it's really, it's just for entertainment purposes. Yeah. Uh, I think I'm blanking out on and how,
0: and how then that's now like a thing that you have to contend uh, with. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, well, it's certainly, it's changed the entire like value, like the market value for an elephant within Laos. we ended up having to pay an extraordinary amount to keep our baby elephant Mm -hmm. way more than what traditionally would have been market value within Laos. So, and you know, the biggest issue is, so we share the Northern border of Laos is borders, China, and there's the border crossing town is called Boten, And it's not legal under CITES, the convention on the international trade of endangered species. You can't issue permits to, you know, move elephants across international borders, but you can make fake permits and you can give the border crossing guys a little bit of money. and Those elephants can just walk across, you know, pretty hassle free. So it's in large part, the government is part of the accessory. You know, they're getting paid off to allow these elephants to move. So while none of it's being done legally, you know, you're, it's hard to fight the government Mm -hmm. because they could easily just come and shut us down if they wanted to. So you have to be pretty tight lipped about, what's going on. It's not like we can just hop on any media platform and start trying to expose this without risking
0: everything Everything you've built.
1: Yeah. So that's, that's a major challenge. Yeah. The biggest thing is just, you know, the price of elephants. Like if we want to go out, if we wanted to buy, you know, these eight elephants, it's going to cost us a lot more. Whereas, you know, when even, yeah, six or seven years ago when i moved there the going rate for a middle-aged female they're worth a little bit more if they've had a baby one baby before um, the first baby can often be a little bit more risky whether or not it's going to survive or not and if it's an older elephant you know getting into its 30s or so and it hasn't had a baby before the risk becomes exponentially higher so a female that's had one or two babies that's you know in your 20s it's going to be worth more than you know, a 30 year old that's never had a baby, but yeah, you know, 25 to $35,000 depending on the elephant. And now, you know, people are asking 50, $60,000 for an elephant. So you're talking about buying eight of them or however many, you know, you know, can only afford four of those if you're putting I mean, out 30000
0: I was going to say, you're easily, but they're going for like 60 K for your, for- what you have, um, you're easily going to be up until like half a million dollars just to even think about having your own.
1: Yep, yeah. and then that doesn't even include you know the salaries for the mahouts. Mahouts being their their caretakers. Normally, each elephant that we have, we have two mahouts because you know they need time off. People get sick. You know, if one of the mahouts decides he needs to leave or go back and take care of his family, whatever the reason might be, you know, elephants get imprinted on the people they work with. They develop really strong relationships. So even someone who's worked with elephants their whole lives, I mean, I guess it's dependent on every elephant. Some elephants are really easy. Some you could just swap in a new mahout and it would be fine. Some really only have like one mahout mm-hmm. that they'll like listen to that they feel comfortable with. So we want to always have two just in case that sometimes, yeah, may come the one that was donated to us. She's been with her mahout for almost 30 years, maybe 27 years, the name is Yacht, Uh his relationship with that elephant, it's really hard for anyone else to work with that elephant. He's mm-hmm. almost like, he's almost impossible to replace. Mm. So we do always have like, you know, the one mahout that's been working with the elephant for an extended period. We bring in another mahout that can, you know, work with that long tenured mahout and get to know the elephant really well. So we can, then it's much more comfortable for the elephants for the most part, they don't want just some random person coming in and telling them what to do. Yeah. But so on top of the price of the elephants, I mean, everything in Laos is getting more expensive as well. Mm -hmm. I think every place in the world, just inflation is increasing. So salaries are higher. The cost of food for all of the elephants our medical bills, the cost for the land, the cost for, you know, office rentals and stuff. So we can actually bring people out there. So all of those costs add up. So beyond just buying the elephants, it's incredibly expensive to, to keep them as well. So if you're talking about a half a million dollars to buy these elephants, then you're also you know, you're talking about, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars a year on top of that, just to be able to take care of them. So it's, it's a lot of money. Yeah. I need Jeff Bezos or (laughs) somebody that just buy all the elephants in the house and,
0: you know, it's,
1: yeah. So prices are are going up.
0: Mm. Wow. Yeah. I guess this might be the perfect time then to talk about COVID. So COVID has hit everybody around the world hard. And I feel that even the poorer countries is hit even harder. And having been in the tourism sector, I mean, I lost my job, but luckily for me, I just lost my job. There's so many people that have experienced so much worse. And I know that you have seen some really, you know, just awful stuff because of COVID. So what has it done for Mandalay and for you?
1: Um, yeah, it's been an incredibly difficult uh, stretch here for us. Yeah, Laos stopped issuing foreign tourist visas in March of 2020. And again, that's really, you know, we do some grant writing and, you know, we have some, some outside funding that comes in, but, uh, primarily it's, it's through the revenue generated by tourists that we're able to, um, run Mandalao and and take care of these elephants in this way. So yeah, without that, you know, we've been hit pretty hard. I guess no one saw COVID coming from hindsight, maybe should have anticipated something but you know we didn't have the resources like enough saved up or backed up to be like oh we can just go without any customers for two years so yeah i mean that really led to us so originally we thought oh well maybe the borders will be closed for a couple of months and then it was six months and we're like oh maybe a few months longer and we had all 13 elephants for the majority of that year. So I think they all went back the very end of 2020 or the eight of them went back and it was just, we couldn't afford the salaries for the mahouts and the, all of the food and the medical treatments. And actually a lot of our elephant owners wanted to breed their elephants
2: mm-hmm.
1: and we're not, it, we're not into breeding for the sake of keeping elephants in captivity. So we don't do any on-site breeding unless it's strictly for the purpose of reintroduction. But it was kind of an opportunity where they know that about us and Mandalao. So I'm like, okay, if you let us bring the elephants back to our village, they all want to breed because kids, mm. you know, to them. I don't mean this as a fault to them, but a baby elephant is worth a lot of money. So yeah, they took them back. So it does probably mean that when these elephants come back to us, well, you know, at least a handful of them that are, are pregnant, We'll open up the whole conversation of how we can purchase those baby elephants so we can use them for reintroduction. But yeah, we've seen our six elephant camps around the Wumpabong and they're all Lao owned and they have been hit the absolute hardest. Um, so we started with our Denver based nonprofit or one that we work with, the Lao elephant initiative to create a feed the elephants campaign. So we went and assessed all six camps figured out which ones were in most need, which elephants were in most need and have been feeding 44 different elephants consistently since then. And when we got there, it was, it was heartbreaking. They didn't have the staff, the mahouts to even take them down to get water. They weren't really feeding them anything. I mean, they were starving to death.
2: I mean, you could, yeah, you don't
1: have to be an expert to see like on pictures. Just seeing like, those
0: photos that you shared with us. Like I, the, and that one where it's like pulling on the chain. Like I'm yeah. vividly seeing that one. Yeah, I mean
1: shoulder blades sticking out, yeah. stones, Hip and ribs mm. and, um so we started doing that and working with uh with local farmers to yeah, produce and grow all the food for them. But we've seen some pretty significant changes and those elephants are actually looking a lot better than we were. We're paying for mahout salaries to actually look after them. But you know, who knows how long this is gonna last for? It's uh yeah. La- supposedly Thailand's going to open up its borders in October, regardless of the risk to vaccinated travelers. I would hope that Laos would follow suit like close after that, but Laos is still in lockdown. It's even hard to travel from province to province wow. right now. So we don't really know. And even if the borders were to just magically reopen, how long is it going to be before you know, the numbers of tourists are coming back? That actually, you know, makes up the difference and can actually get back to a point where we were pre-pandemic. So right now we're struggling to raise the funds to, you know, not only take care of our elephants, but, you know, support the camps around us and not support the camps. You know, we would never uh, directly just hand one of the camp owners money or anything. Chances are, you know, again, it's that cultural thing where... You know, you go to one of these camps, the elephants are starving, but you know, the owner of the camp is still driving his, you know, nice truck and is still in nice clothes and they don't look at it the same as us. they are like, oh, well, you know, elephants don't have money, so they're not really going to eat food right now. So we're pretty much avoiding dealing with like the owners themselves and just focus directly on bringing food, bringing veterinary care and working with the elephants. So yeah, it's been, it's been really challenging in our, you know, our, really our main goal, and I think we get into this in a bit, but the ecotourism project, bringing people to see wild elephants and be part of our elephant reintroduction program has been totally put on halt because of this as well. I mean, it's hard to travel in between provinces. It's uh, a lot of the government offices have been opened and closed and opened and closed depending on like the restrictions that are in place from time to time. So yeah, everything's kind of just stalled mm-hmm. all of our forward momentum has just been put on pause and now it's just kind of become survival mode
0: mm-hmm. so so right now the main way that you're keeping your doors open is like through grants and donations and stuff yeah and if anyone listening would have something to give what is the best way so you said if there is a denver non is that the best way to give through or directly to Mandalau or how, what's the best way?
1: Um, we have a few different ways. Yeah, the Lao Elephant Initiative as our nonprofit based out of here in Denver. They also do other projects as well, not specifically just for Mandalao and mm-hmm. our Feed the Elephants campaign. So if anyone was to decide to make a contribution to them, you need to just kind of specify that you would want the money to go to Mandalao and Feed the Elephants campaign. Otherwise it might get dispersed in, in different areas. But if it is specified, then yeah, it comes directly to, to our project. We do also have uh, GoFundMe mm-hmm. just on our website, mandalautours.com that we're raising funds on. I know GoFundMe is not exactly the best. They do take, I believe it's like 3%, which is a major bummer, but it's uh, having all of our bank accounts in Laos can be pretty challenging for people to make, you know, even if it's a five dollar donation whatever to transfer that all the way overseas so mm-hmm. we decided to use that as our platform so those are probably the two best and then uh the katie adamson conservation fund they just launched a fundraising campaign for us as well and feed the elephants so if you go to their website they're also a non-profit any of those donations will come directly back to us as well
2: yeah
0: everyone listening you know dave <laughs> dave of kcf and if you haven't go listen to episode two because he is the bomb um, awesome. yeah he's the one that hosted the fundraiser the other day for and all proceeds from the fundraiser went directly to you so yeah and yeah it was a very moving fundraiser so hopefully the people there were like yes let me help michael with sure. <laughs>
1: yeah but I, I mean also just on top of that i realize after, you know, I just said, we have no idea when the borders are really going to open and things are going to get back to normal. But you know, if people want to contribute, come out and see us come up. Like tourism plays a huge role in conservation and what we're able to do. And sometimes people think, well, the concept of sustainable travel doesn't really make sense. You know, you're hopping in a plane, all those carbon emissions, all of the waste, all of your food, like. You know, it just seems like that's not sustainable, but really projects like ours and many others around the world, they're fully based off the revenue generated through tourism. So take the lesser of two evils, but some carbon emissions versus showing a government that we need to protect these animals. They're actually valuable. And I hate to think about elephants and money like together, you know, I guess it's more of a Western concept, but like the intrinsic value Mm -hmm. within just protecting an animal should just be inherent but it's not in most places in the world you know they need to see the cash value and that's what tourism does so you know these without it the animals suffer so yeah when things open back up like Please come and see
2: us. Yes. <laughs> like,
1: come, come. Oh, we're coming.
0: We're coming. Between, yeah. I already have another Nepal trip that I need to go do to go see red pandas and snow leopards. Nice. And then go to Kathmandu and then we'll just hop on over. And <laughs> I'm <Okay. For> sure <laughs> Dave and Ray and Chuck will be with me too. Oh, hi, baby. <laughs> oh, hi. Do you like being a part of the conversation too?
2: Uh-huh.
0: She's <laughs> loving this right now. Yes, you are. You are,
1: you have anything to add?
0: Yeah, do you want to say anything? Do you need proof? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. She's like, I'm just gonna sleep and enjoy. It. I'm
1: putting her to sleep,
0: <laughs> it's not entertaining. Enough. No, if, if she was really bored, she'd be in the back room. She's <laughs> totally enjoying all of this right now, but yeah, but when it comes to tourism, that's why I'm such a big advocate for it, and why that's the one I made my big career shift to. Uh, sustainable conservation travel is because it is one of the only industries in the world that puts a direct dollar value on alive and thriving wildlife and nature there are very few i mean if any other sectors or industries that directly place value on nature and wildlife Mm -hmm. because it is about money i mean it really truly is it is about money that is the way the world works and As much as we wish it was all about butterflies and rainbows and roses and just good feelings, that's not the way the world works. It is about money. And so to take advantage of that and put it to our use, ecotourism, giving people this amazing experience that then supports these elephants and then shows a whole entire country that you can do it different. You can do it sustainably. You can do it where these elephants have a good life. And this is how we will show you how it's done. And maybe even started movement in the process with a lot of hard things along the way. There's nothing easy about anything that I just said, but <laughs>
1: for sure, for sure. But no, you're absolutely right. I mean, <laughs> yeah. It's it's one of the like key cogs in the puzzle. I mean, it's a mm-hmm. the main piece towards certainly, you know, not just with, you know, captive, I think you're talking about just the broader scope of conservation, not just with animals in captivity, but, you know, conservation of wild species as well. And that's, uh, kind of our next big big step is really going to be to let's go into
0: in. that
2: <laughs> yeah so
1: here, um yeah nam pui national biodiversity conservation area uh no national parks in laos they just have this really long name for some reason and, um but yeah they still have about 80 wild elephants there we've been working with wwf laos they've been there for in the park for 12 years maybe yeah and just this core zone of the park that we've mapped out and it's it's gorgeous. Uh beautiful that Nampoon River comes through, massive old growth trees, perfect elephant habitat. I mean uh bears, leopards, clouded leopards, uh yeah, white-handed gibb- gibbons, uh, like oh all God. yeah, all sorts of wildlife that you you don't see much of in Laos anymore. It's one mm. of the a few like main pockets that's left, but it's uh you know, it's a protected area, but it's not really protected. Mm. Without the WWF Laos being there, there'd be really like no protection at all, but they don't even have the resources to be able to fully protect the area. They've got two patrol teams that go out. They have their camera traps and stuff, but it's, it's not nearly enough.
0: How big is this area?
1: It's just over a hundred thousand hectares, square hectares.
0: And they have two patrol teams.
1: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> so the,
0: And this isn't savannah. This isn't flat, open grasslands, right?
1: No. <laughs> no, it's mostly, yeah, steep mountains and thick forest. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, the goal would be to get some sort of a concession or a right from the government to set up our own patrol teams. Like, yeah, work with the WWF Laos since they have a lot more experience there than we do. But, you know, we've identified a few different salt licks that the elephants come to most every night. You know, build big viewing platforms up above because you don't want to be on the ground when, you know, some wild elephants come walking through the jungle so we can safely observe the elephants without, you know, uh, distracting them as well. You know, we don't want to interfere with their kind of like normal behaviors. Um, Guests could go out with uh, the patrol teams and set up and check wildlife camera traps, measure, and you know, monitor tracks and like different animal signs that they see along the way and build like an eco lodge there so people could spend you know a few nights within the park in this gorgeous area and you know really show the government oh okay you know there's there's money to be made here like you could go through and you could chop down those trees or you know and then that's that and then it's just you know a grassy field after that for a few hundred years till the trees grow back or you could build it into something sustainable that is good for the country's image that you know attracts more tourists that you know, it's but still it's hard to without actually putting that into place and showing them, it's a hard thing to convince them that it's real and true. So we have a few hurdles to get past before we can, you know, get to that point. But I, I'm really confident that once we do, they will see the the upside of it and be more supportive in the future and you know, hopefully we can do
2: it in, in other
1: parks within laps and Yeah, that'd be where we did the elephant reintroduction too. So that's, it's a long-term process. You know, it's not as simple as, you know, kicking the elephants in the butt
2: and (laughs) be free. Uh,
1: you know, it's a, it's a few years before the elephants are truly like acclimated towards wildlife. So you'd still have kind of that aspect of, you know, the goal would not just be our, you know, first three or four elephants to reintroduce, but it'd be kind of like a constant stream of, of elephants coming in captive elephants that we rehabilitate and put back in. So. Guests could also participate, like, you know, with the elephants that are in that rehabilitation program and see the work that we're doing on that front. And yeah, the park itself actually shares its whole Western border with Thailand. There's three national parks on the Thai side and a no hunting zone. Actually the no hunting zone is more well protected than Laos's national protected areas. Wow, (laughs) Um, Thailand does a really good job. It's kind of the gold standard for, for conservation in Southeast Asia. So there's plenty of room for the elephant population to expand there and for them to, you know, wander over to Thailand and Yeah. So it's a it's a great location, but the hydropower is becoming Laos is becoming like the battery for Southeast Asia.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: They're putting up hydropower plants and reservoirs at just a ridiculous rate, displacing a ton of you know, the wild elephant populations within Laos, not just elephants, but all the species that that call those areas home. And there's plans to do a hydropower plant uh, on the Nampoon River right in the area that we're kind of thinking we're going to do this ecotourism project. So we're going to have to see how this all unfolds as well. But uh, yeah, so it's,
2: it's an uphill, uphill battle.
0: Mm. So for the timeline for that, is that something – I guess, I guess we're, 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 what is like the priority level so like, what needs to be in place to get that back started? Is that a conversation you can have with the government now? Or are they like, we need to see, I guess, how is that going? Because obviously us being, you know, conservationists, wildlife biologists, that is the ultimate goal. Mm-hmm. Like that, getting wild elephants in their natural habitat, being elephants, and then also having a whole... Almost like a, you know, game drive, wildlife drive experience based around that. Like that is so cool. Taking like the, you know, Safari model and being able to put it as a sustainable income in that area. That's
2: freaking awesome. (laughs) God,
0: it's awesome. I'm already like, how can I sell these trips that don't (laughs) exist yet? (laughs) So, but before all that happens, like how are you guys going about this? How are you, how do you present it to the government? Like this is what you need to do to the area. Don't put a hydropower dam in. Like, how is that going? Is WWF like, are there all those things?
1: Um, yeah, it's a big process. Honestly, I was hopeful that we would have had this finished probably three years ago. I've been working on it pretty consistently. Um, so since it is like uh, national land, a national protected area. Um, You have to deal directly with the government to get any sort of right to do any work within the park so we've submitted our entire feasibility study you know our action plan on how we're going to develop it we've shown you know the assets needed the work experience that we have the the knowledge and know-how to be able to complete this project we've been working with a team um uh, a law team down in Vientiane, the capital mm. um, that basically brings this and presents it all to the related government uh, sectors that kind of make these decisions. We've gotten support letters from, I believe there's seven different government sectors that have to agree to it before it goes to the prime, Minister, prime minister's office. And then it has to go to a national committee and be voted on. So it's tough they've come back with us with different things saying well if we want we're looking at about like half the park about 50,000 hectares mm-hmm. that we would want like full right to patrol it would be ours to to manage they came back at one point and said oh it's going to be I, I can't even remember the exact figure but it would have been like a few million dollars a year that we had to pay which is like okay yeah that's not going to happen and then, They came back and, you know, we're like, all we want to do is build like one little eco lodge, a couple of like viewing towers. Like we're not going to cut down any trees. We're not going to be disturbing. Like this isn't a mining operation. Like we're trying to preserve it like, oh, well, that's, that's very different. And, you know, maybe you can just pay for this little chunk of land that you actually build something on, you know, we've actually got support from the prime minister's office. So we've got all of this support and it seems like even two years ago and it really again everything is just completely stalled with covid so the past year and a half it's just been kind of like dead in the water like no progress at all before that i felt like we were really starting to get somewhere and then you know everything just kept kind of dragging on and dragging on and it's in the stybury province where they hold the elephant festival where most of our elephants are from where we've kind of battled the government with not conforming to sending our elephants there not conforming to send our baby elephant for training so i think we're getting a lot of pushback from the province level government and there is a very like strong province within the country i think the governor is giving some like pushing back towards like the mm-hmm. prime minister's office i'm not exactly sure but it's been kind of stalled and hasn't really gone anywhere and then we also heard about this hydropower project which i'm sure they have a lot more money to invest It's right in the same area we're looking at. So I think there's a few moving pieces. So if you had asked me three or four years ago, I would have said this would have already been created and operational. Uh, So it's hard for me to give a timeline. We would like to get it done as soon as we possibly can, but it's, uh, yeah. I would hope in the next year or two we'll have.
2: Mm. have So
0: it was like this, um, this concept of tourism just doesn't exist in Laos. Like having an eco lodge in a protected area where tourists come to see wildlife. Does that exist at all?
2: Um, wait, eh, a little bit. Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) Yeah. There's down South. There's a place called the Kingfisher Lodge that I'm going to forget the name of the protected area that surrounds it, but it used to be like kind of a haven for bird watchers. And That was like King instant.
0: Kingfisher. Yeah.
1: <laughs> that was kind of inside the boundaries of the park. Uh, I'm not sure when that opened up fifteen years ago. It was just down there, yeah, last year, they chopped down all of the forest around it, so now it's just this random little lodge and then giant field, so that project didn't go very far, that was kind of a swing and a miss, but and i'm not i I don't know the specifics behind what really really happened there, but um yeah, and then up in uh Nimet Phu Lui National Protected Area on the border of Vietnam, they do a night safari uh, where they float down the river through the park and you get to see some wildlife. Never actually done it myself and they do have like some guest accommodations out there. No elephants, unfortunately, but in general that's it. I mean, there's small little pockets of like, uh, like zip lines and stuff in, you know, in areas that are, you know, still natural. So it does, but not to the extent that we're talking about mm-hmm. building it and not really for the preservation of species. So it would be on kind of a different level than we've seen in last so far.
0: Cause I can see how that might be one of the reasons why you're running into so many issues. It's like, we've not seen this model before. Is it going to bring us this much money when we know hydropower is going to bring us this direct revenue? For sure. For sure. I can see that being a big issue.
1: Um, yeah. So I think there's, there's a few factors that have
2: you know, mm-hmm.
1: yeah, fallen into place, but yeah, I think some pushback from the the local government there, even though we have support from like the central level government and hydropower and money. And yeah, I think there's a lot of different pieces in place that are, have slowed down the process mm-hmm. a lot more. Than I would so have
0: like, so there. it's to the point now where like, there's no one outside that can help it anyway. It's really just within the Laosian government itself. Yes. Okay. Okay. So it's like, I know some conservation travel development people, like I think it's whatever you need. I probably know somebody, but it doesn't sound like it's, that's the issue. It sounds like it's purely in country getting the thing off the ground.
1: Yeah. I mean, we already have architectural designs, mm. and like everything like submitted in our feasibility study and our business proposal and all of that. So it's, it's really just getting the, the approval. Well, and then also find the, find the money to be able to build a project, but mm-hmm. I'm confident, you know, given the right business proposal, we'll be able to find someone who could invest the capital needed to,
2: to Oh, absolutely. It. I think
1: that'll be one of the easier parts, but
2: mm-hmm.
1: yeah. So we'll see a daydream of the place all the time. It's like, it's a little paradise. It's incredible.
0: Well, when that's built, I'm <laughs> going to be there. <laughs> I want to be some of the first guests. For
2: sure. That would be incredible.
0: That would be incredible. Dang, dude. You have like such a crazy story. Um, <laughs> And all of this stuff that you've done. So how long have you been there? How long have the Mandelau been around? And We opened 20?
1: up in 2016. So I guess I probably moved there. Maybe it was 20, 2015 that I moved there full time. Wow. And then off and on for a year kind of before that uh like i said we spent months like toured the whole country like really tried to find learn as much about it as possible and figure out the best possible place for us also one where we could see ourselves living uh, you know
2: it's That's a good point
1: it's a very rural country i don't know what you know yeah 26 or whenever i originally moved there that i was quite prepared to just do straight village life for the next you know foreseeable future of my life. So Luan Prabang kind of also maybe realize just the tourists flow through there. Um, and also it's just a great place to live. So kind of did a little bit of a balancing act Mm. in between there. Um, yeah. So off and on in
2: 2015 and then full-time in 2016.
0: So what would you say, I, I love asking this question to pretty much anyone that comes on, in your journey so far, what has been the hardest thing that you've had to overcome?
2: Hmm. Uh, i got a long list. <laughs> i was trying to think of, like, yeah. I
1: mean, I would say it's, I mean, it's, it's, it is with the government. I mean, it's just the challenges that we face, like the pushback, the training just like the training like kind of the biggest one for me um, and just their being so stuck in their ways and not willing to kind of experiment try this project out in the protected area and like explore tourism like it's, it's very corrupt so mm. you know just the it seemed like when I originally like kind of came up with these ideas, let's do this. I was down with the WWF all the time, exploring part, mapping, mapping out like a, the core zone boundaries. Like it's like, yeah, let's do this. We, we have this locked up. This is a great idea. And then just getting completely just like stonewalled by the government. And there's so many communist government. There's huge government. There's so many different agencies and so many different levels and like try and like get through all of that red tape and you know you might get 20 different pieces of paper stamped and signed by government officials and then you move to the next level and then they don't agree and then those 20 are worth you know worthless and then you have to restart again so just trying to uh to get support from the government to like move forward on this kind of stuff has been mentally really stressful mm-hmm. <laughs> and challenging um I would say that's that's been the biggest hurdle.
0: Well, then on the flip side of that, what's been the most rewarding? What keeps you going?
1: Uh, That one's easy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like I mentioned a little bit earlier, but, you know, when we originally brought up those five elephants, and it's true for all of the elephants that have come to us that are kind of shells. They were shells of what they are today. And just seeing, you know, these scared animals that have lived these horrible lives coming and just, turning into completely different creatures and just, you know, opening up and becoming social with one another and, you know, being around people and into the water and playing. we've got this mate too. She's, I, we don't know exactly with all of our elephants, how old they are. It's kind of like a guesstimate, but she's probably in her fifties late forties and she gets down to the river and she, plays like she's a two-year-old baby (laughs) slaps her truck and rolls around and floats downstream and it's like actually behavior you don't normally see in adult elephants but it's like she never had a childhood to experience that and be an elephant so she's getting to live out her childhood fantasies Mm -hmm. as like an adult so it's so rewarding to see these elephants like actually enjoy life and appreciate their surroundings and be happy and live the lives that they deserve Mm -hmm. so that's what that's what keeps me going for sure
2: that's beautiful what
0: is a message that you would like to share a piece of advice or just a if there's one thing that you want somebody to take away from this conversation what would that be
2: Very good question Uh, you know I guess
1: kind of simply put Certainly when looking at animals in captivity, and this doesn't just have to be for for elephants. It can be even for your your little kitten right here. Um,
2: (laughs) She perked up. She was listening to you.
1: Um, (laughs) You know, we as humans have altered the face of this planet so significantly. And this could also go for, for wild animals as well. But, you know, animals didn't choose to be put into this position. No elephants chose to be in captivity. It's, humans that put them into this position, you know, it's you that decided to get a kitten. (laughs) And, you know, really with that becomes the responsibility on our part to treat them the way that they deserve and give them the best possible. You know, it's not all these animals, I guess kittens are a little bit different or cats, you know, she could probably survive on her own in the wild, but, you know, most of our elephants, they rely on humans to survive.
0: Because so that's all they've ever known, right?
1: Yeah. So it's, you know, just looking at your life and everything around us, you know, it's, we did this to the animals and it's our obligation to, to do the right thing and take care of
0: them in the right way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's gorgeous. Beautiful. It's <laughs> awesome. So what is the best way for uh, somebody? I know we, we mentioned it a little bit ago, but if somebody wants to support you or contact you or reach out to you, what is the best way for someone to go about that?
1: Yeah. If you'd like to reach out to me personally, I'm not sure if you, you put like a,
0: I have show a, notes and stuff. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So you have my email, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's probably the easiest way. Email our phone number. Although I'll be back in my house in about a month or so. So my phone number here won't work, but uh, I'll send you my WhatsApp number as well. Okay.
2: Great. Um, I'll put those in the show notes.
1: Yeah. And then, um, yeah. Certainly for any like questions or if you just want to learn more about the project, like anyone is more than welcome to reach out to me and directly over the phone or, or via email. And then really for contributions, um, yeah, directly through our website, the GoFundMe is huge. Cause that just, that's all going directly back to the elephants. Cause I mean, I haven't, we had about 75 employees pre-COVID we're down to about 20. I mean, we had to cut it down to absolute bare bones. I haven't had a, a salary since March of 2020. Mm. So just, so everybody knows like literally everything <laughs> is going to the elephants right now. My business partner is running, you know, kind of the whole show over there right now. He's making $500 a month. So our, but there's not much overhead. <laughs> so if you make a donation, like it really is going to not just Mandela's elephants, but to the the elephants campaign. Yeah, and either through, yeah, the Katie Adamson Conservation Fund, the donations page they have, or Allow Elephant Initiative. Mm-hmm. Um, but can certainly promise we're, uh, we're making every penny count, mm-hmm. and putting it where it's, uh, where it's absolutely needed most.
0: It's awesome to hear, you know, about an organization that really is doing, you no, know, they're walking the walk as they talk the talk. So.
1: For sure. Yeah. That's, uh, hopefully, uh, when things do open back up, people will you know really see our true colors and hopefully we'll uh, start getting people back and you know get the support that we need to mm-hmm. continue pushing forward with the ecotourism and bring our elephants back and continue supporting the projects with the elephants around us that need the most help so yeah hopefully it all comes back full circle
0: yeah hope so do you have any parting thoughts before we wrap up today
1: um no thank you for for having me and your awesome work and yeah i love that you're yeah meeting a ton of interesting people and getting the <laughs> message out there on conservation because there's a lot of people in this world that are you know really dedicated and focused towards conservation efforts and it's wonderful to have a platform like yours where you can get the word out so thank you very very much and yeah i guess uh Excited to see you in Laos. <laughs> yeah, you're to see
0: going everybody. to see me in Laos. It's going to, to happen.
1: Excited to see everybody in Laos. So please uh, share the message, and as soon as things open up, um, come on out and see us, and hang out with the elephants. And uh, yeah, we can do this together. But it's it's going to take uh, it's going to take a community mm-hmm. to be able to make this happen.
2: Right.
1: I certainly can't do it by myself. That's for sure. Right.
0: And That's what this awesome community is all about. Us supporting each other all for the greater good of wildlife and nature. For sure. Yeah. For sure. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Michael. Yeah, absolutely. Can't wait thank to you, get you, it, for it for up. having me. <laughs> wow. wow, what an impactful conversation. For this week's question, I want to pose this to you. And again, please DM me on Instagram or email or website. I mean, any anywhere you want to get a hold of me. I'm so easy to get a hold of. But this is the question I would love to pose to you. Have you participated in elephant tourism anywhere in the world? If so, what were your thoughts about the experience? Did Michael's stories clarify the conundrum of captive elephants in Asian countries? All right, everyone, reach out to me. Let me know. I would love to hear your answer. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel, story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we
2: will rewild the planet.